Hello and welcome to my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. The lockdown and all the other responses to COVID-19 have been wrong. They've been unscientific and unethical. They've been self-defeating. They're standing in the way of our finding a real solution to the pandemic. We've been failed by the experts, the epidemiologists, the World Health Organization and the public health experts have all been operating on weak science and a partial and biased view of the crisis. Our political representatives in every country have not been able to intelligently assess the advice of the experts or to place it in its proper context by acting on the basis of a science which they did not understand they have failed the people and the science. Above all, this is a crisis brought about by a society that is on the one hand excessively dependent on science and that on the other hand has within the lay public, political leaders and commentators a very weak grasp of the science, at least of the kind that is in vogue among public health experts today. If we, as the lay public, want to get out of this crisis, then we have to start thinking for ourselves. We have to think as if our life depends on it because it does. This means that we have to dig much deeper than we usually do with a scientific topic to understand for ourselves what the science is saying. Everything began with the epidemiologists. But how many of us know anything about epidemiology even today? What do we know about the mathematical modeling that has ruled our lives since March? Let's try to find out. Now here, <clears throat> I want to warn you that today's lecture will be all about the science and it's going to get a bit dry, but please bear with me. We have to understand the science in order to proceed to the meteor stuff about the history of epidemics, the culture of disease, and what the proper response should have been. We'll get to that, but first we need to spend a little time getting to grips with the science. So, what is this mathematical modeling that the experts keep talking about? Mathematical modeling involves the use of different types of equations that were developed in the field of statistical maths. Using these equations, you can calculate the total number or size of something, whatever it is that you're studying, by taking into account the variables that affect it. They're supposed to help you to answer questions like how many cars on an assembly line will be defective or how big is a black hole. If the size of the phenomena you're looking at varies depending on what you start with. Say for instance, uh, for cars, the number of defective nuts, or if you're looking at black holes, the size of a collapsing star, or what you're studying varies with a time-related factor, like the age of the assembly line equipment for cars, or whatever other variables that might be relevant, you can put them into your equation and get a result that takes them all into account. 
these calculations are used in various fields like physics, economics, business, sociology, poll surveys and our area of interest for the moment, epidemiology. The results of these calculations can be plotted on a graph to give you the curves with which we've all now become so familiar. The actual arithmetic of this exercise is carried out by feeding the numbers for different variables into a computer that has been programmed to run calculations using your chosen equation. But a computer can only run the variables according to the equation. It cannot tell you what those variables should be. And herein lies the rub. Deciding which variables are relevant to the phenomena you're studying is not a mathematical exercise, but a theoretical one. Ideally, you should have a solid theoretical understanding of the phenomena under study on the basis of which you can identify in a rigorous, stable and complete way the set of variables that apply. An estimation using mathematical modeling is not merely about putting a number on different elements in your equation. It is, in essence, a theory of what elements to include in the equation and how they relate to each other. But epidemiologists are not big on theory. They don't spend much time thinking about whether they've taken into account all the factors that drive a disease outbreak or their relevant importance. There is no great understanding in principle of any disease or any population. They prefer to run with working assumptions which they keep changing as things unfold in the real world with whatever disease they're modeling. To avoid getting caught up in questions of the biology of a disease, Epidemiologists start with a simple theory. The spread of disease in a population at any point in time is a factor of the number susceptible to it, S, the number infected by it, I, and the number recovered from it, R. This is the SIR model. Sounds like we've made some progress, but really, we're just where we started because we don't know what are the numbers of susceptible? What are the numbers of recovered? What are the numbers of infected? Each of these is a variable in itself, which needs its own theory for what are the further things, that is, the further variables that determine each one of them. Who is susceptible? Who is exposed? And so on. Since COVID-19 is a contact disease, epidemiologists took as their key working assumption the degree of contact with others as determining who would be infected. But this in turn required further working assumptions such as what kind of contact results in infection and what is the basis for assuming how much contact a person has. Since you cannot do a direct count of the number of contacts each person in a population has, you look for what they call proxies or indicators. And in this case, more often than not, they looked at travel statistics or cell phone data to act as their indicator or proxy for contact. Then there were other assumptions that needed to be made, such as how to take into account the period of infectiousness, how to factor in the time to onset of symptoms, can people be asymptomatic but 
uh, but infectious and so on. In this way, you can see how at each step in deciding what variables go into our equation, we're relying on multiple levels of estimates within estimates and assumptions within assumptions. Each element of the epidemiological model is in itself a cascading series of estimates and rough working assumptions. Any one of your cascade of estimates and assumptions that turns out to be wrong could throw the whole result off. <clears throat> what makes all of this even more unreliable is that epidemiologists don't even spend much time identifying the underlying estimates or assumptions when assembling the variables for the equation. So, very often, it's not even a question of the assumptions that have consciously been made but of the things that have been unconsciously assumed in the model. In other words, assumptions will be built into the epidemiologist models that they are not even aware of. <clears throat> Sometimes epidemiologists try to correct for this by applying yet more models to their base model to adjust for over or underestimation of the different variables. But each adjustment comes with its own assumptions and uncertainties, adding to the already cascading series of assumptions and uncertainties in the base model. Now, what's wrong here is not the maths, but the science, or rather the lack of science. It is said of modeling that your prediction is only as good as your data, garbage in, garbage out. But this really obscures the uncertainty, incompleteness, and messiness, which we just discussed, that is embedded in epidemiological thinking. Your model is really only as good as the theory on which it is based, and epidemiologists have very poor theories, if at all, behind their models. Often it's the case, not just of garbage in, garbage out, but garbage all the way down. Now, <clears throat> After putting together their back-of-the-envelope variables, epidemiologists then start the exercise of what they call fitting, fitting their models to data. What is this? As the information and data for the disease comes in, the quantities assigned to different variables in the model are changed so as to produce the outcome that is observed. On this basis, the epidemiologist will work backwards to tell you, for instance, the reproduction number or R, which is the number of people who can be infected by one ill person. This is a key estimate that epidemiologists use to predict the rate of transmission of a disease. After back calculating to infer the R, they then use this R, they use this back calculated R value to work forwards to predict the number of cases. So, do you see how circular it is? Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it further on. Where this keeps going wrong is that because there's no understanding in principle of how the virus behaves or why some people fall ill and others don't, your prediction based from the inference of present behavior is only as good as your assumption about if and when the R is going to change over time. 
to calculate the r for covid epidemiologists are using the daily data put out by countries of their cases but what is popularly called the daily data is not really daily in any coherent or stable sense they merely the data that have been reported for that day this may include cases from previous days and leave out as yet unreported cases for that day this makes a big difference if you are trying to calculate the rate of growth using daily reported data a key element that gripped everyone's attention with the covid-19 pandemic was the so called doubling rate which was said to be exponential now what happens is that at the start of an infection you're still guessing where the cases might be found diseases don't have a very wide range of variation in their symptoms fever cough cold and diarrhea about sums up the range of symptoms so initially you spot a few cases here and there which gives you a flattish line if you're plotting daily cases over time and as you start getting better at identifying cases and people begin to realize that they might not have an ordinary flu but this new disease more cases begin to be detected and so you will inevitably see a dramatic and exponential rise this may or may not mean that the cases are in fact rising exponentially in hindsight you may find that there were many more undetected cases at the time that you thought the graph was flat okay which takes it up this way if this is the case then you would be wrong to have predicted soaring exponential growth in cases based on daily reported case data this exponential growth that you're seeing could well be an exponential growth in cases being reported because of various factors like increased testing increased awareness of the disease leading to more people reporting for diagnosis or faster tests and so on there is also a time lag between the person getting infected and the diagnosis or lab confirmation of the infection so the cases that are reported actually represent infections that occurred many days back depending on the incubation period this means that when cases are reported to be peaking the actual infections or case onset is of several days or weeks before you may still have many cases and face a serious challenge caring for all those who fall ill but your prediction of exponential growth based on cases detected in the first weeks of the outbreak will be wrong if like epidemiologists you have no real theory just some roughly thought out tentative incomplete ideas about the disease in question then fitting can end up reinforcing your wrong assumptions about it we've already seen that if your reported cases are not accurate then the r derived from them will not be correct this starting mistake gets compounded if at that point instead of looking for another more dependable basis on which to assess the r you do fitting by increasing or decreasing the r depending on the cases that you see over the next few days if you keep doing this you'll never get to a point where you can have a reliable r it's also dangerously circular reasoning essentially you're saying that the number of cases depends on the r and the r depends on the number of cases
This type of analysis may be helpful as an adjunct to a more rigorous theoretical understanding of a disease, but it should not be used to frame and lead thinking about it. The number of cases that we see for a disease are merely its outward manifestation. To truly understand a disease, we need to dig much deeper into the biology of the pathogen itself, as well as the way in which the human body responds to it. If we have a correct understanding of these things, then we can perhaps accurately model the disease. But without this knowledge, modeling is a terrible way to evaluate anything. Even if it turns out to be right, it is so only by chance. Even at a more sophisticated level of analysis than the one used by epidemiologists, for instance, in theoretical maths or physics, <clears throat> there is legitimate debate over the validity and reliability of modeling. These are questions not just about the data and choice of variables, <clears throat> but about the equations themselves and whether it is always correct to draw your analysis based on outcomes for which these equations give you higher probabilities. This is not the place to go into these issues in any detail, but you need to be aware of them to give the context for how public health experts might have gone wrong in conceptualizing pandemic disease. Added to all these structural contradictions and weaknesses in the epidemiologist's approach are all the problems with data. By now, <clears throat> anyone following the COVID numbers must be familiar with the problems with data. There are inconsistencies in the way a disease is tested or clinically diagnosed and in the way a death is attributed to a given disease. There are uncertainties in whether testing results are accurate. Added to this are uncertainties over whether results are accurately reported. Then there are time lags in reporting. Not all these problems with the data are of a nature that better reporting can iron out. For example, the debate over dying with or by COVID-19 is not a reporting issue, but a scientific one and will probably stay alive among scientists for decades to come. So, to add to all the gaps in what a model can tell us is the inevitability, the inevitability of the data on which it is dependent not being very good. Epidemiologists try to adjust for this with more models, but again, this is an estimation. Adjustment does not clean up the data in any absolute sense. Okay, I'm going to stop here because this is quite a bit of information to digest. Tomorrow, we'll turn from this general discussion of epidemiology to a more detailed analysis of the modeling that was done for COVID. Specifically, we'll go into the famous Imperial College report or the infamous report, depending on how you feel about this based on which the world went into lockdown. So that's going to be a second rather dry lecture. And after that, I promise you, I promise you the discussion will get lighter and easier to digest. Uh, today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog, covidlectures.blogspot.com. The full paper has already been published there. See you tomorrow, 7 p.m. India time, 2.30 p.m. London time, and 9.30 a.m. New York time on Facebook Live 
for another round of the COVID lecture series, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Thank you so much for joining me.